Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in solo this week. Got a couple interesting articles to chat about, and then a main topic for the day. Thank you all for tuning in to listen to this week's episode. We're going to start out with the update for the Kristen Smart case. That episode came out on April 16th, 2021. It was episode number 127, if you would like some more details on that. But in the meantime, the big news is that Paul Flores has been found guilty in the murder of Kristen Smart. So... It was an article that came out. Um, Richard Winton was the author, and it says a jury on Tuesday convicted Paul Flores in the murder of Cal Poly San Luis Obispo student Kristen Smart, ending a more than two decades mystery that both captivated and outraged the Central Coast college town. Flores was found guilty of first-degree murder even though authorities never found Kristen Smart's body, an issue long considered a stumbling block for the case. His father, Ruben Flores, 81, was acquitted of being an accessory to murder, a second jury that heard evidence at the same time during the 12-week trial of the two men thought there was reasonable doubt that he had helped cover his son's crime by burying Kristen Smart's body under his house's deck and keeping the remains there for years. Smart, who was 19 at the time that she vanished on May 25, 1996, was walking towards college dormitories with Paul Flores after a party. She was legally declared dead in 2002. Her disappearance and the murder investigation left an indelible mark on San Luis Obispo. Billboards appealed for evidence to convict her killer. The disappearance was the subject of a true crime podcast, many true crime podcasts for that matter, but it did spawn a cottage industry of investigators. Because of the detention, a judge ordered that the trial be moved to Monterey County to ensure fair legal proceedings. Flores' jury deliberated for eight days, while jurors in the case against his father deliberated for three days before they reached their verdict. Ruben Flores' jury had to restart deliberations after an alternate had to replace one juror who was removed after he spoke to his priest about the case. Paul Flores faces a sentence of 25 years to life in prison when he is sentenced on December 9th. His attorney, Robert Sanger, did not comment as reporters peppered him with questions as he left the Salinas courthouse. San Luis Obispo County District Attorney Dan Dow said that after a quarter of a century, the system has no final delivered justice for Smart, the impact that Kristen Smart's disappearance in 1996 and the investigation has had on the Smart family and our community has been profound. Today's justice is delayed, but not justice denied. Stan Smart crusaded for justice in his daughter's disappearance for years and said that with Tuesday's split verdict, the quest is now over. Without Kristen, there's no joy or happiness in this burden, he said during a news conference speaking on behalf of his family. This has been an agonizing long journey with more ups and downs, but our faith in the justice system has been renewed. Ruben Flores, speaking outside of the courthouse after the ankle monitor he had worn for 18 months was removed, said the case was about feelings. It wasn't about facts, said Flores, who did not get to speak with his son before he was taken away. It was mostly about feelings, and I think that's what happened with my son. They were carried away with feelings about their family and the girl missing. During the trial, San Luis Obispo County District Attorney alleged that Paul Flores raped or attempted to rape and eventually killed Smart before hiding her remains under his father's house deck. Then... 
The deputy district attorney said a neighbor reported strange activity with a trailer in the yard in 2020. The prosecutor told juries that was when father and son moved Smart's remains as investigators made new inquiries about the property. But Ruben Flores denied these allegations. They've had searches and everything, he said. They've come to my house and they say she's buried here and that's a surprise to me. They say I dug her up. I'm 81 years old. You know, I don't do too much digging. Purell portrayed Paul Flores as a predator who, even after becoming the focus of the smart investigation, drugged and raped women he lured to his Los Angeles area home. The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's detectives working on this case arrested Flores at his San Pedro home in April 2021, decades after identifying him as a person of interest in Smart's disappearance. Jurors have been told a bunch of conspiracy theories not backed up by facts, said the defense attorney. Prosecutors, he argued, had no forensic evidence, including DNA or blood, connecting Flores to any crime. The case, he said, was built on circumstantial evidence amplified by residents and a true crime podcast. That true crime podcast was your own backyard, which eventually turned up potential witnesses and avenues of investigation. Harold Mezik Ruben Flores' attorney said during closing arguments that what distinguished this case from most murder cases was the lack of physical evidence and the demonization of the Floreses in San Luis Obispo over the years. He should never have been charged, Mezik said Tuesday after his client was cleared. It would be nice if the community would actually honor the presumption of innocence. There is so much animosity towards this man and his family. Mezik said he expects Paul Flores' attorney to appeal and in part use Ruben Flores' verdict to bolster that argument. Cal Poly officials called the verdict a welcome development in the pursuit of justice. Kristen Smart's disappearance is a tragic part of our Cal Poly community's history, and our university has closely watched the case, hoping throughout for justice for Kristen and resolution for her family. Our university community hopes today's verdict brings some comfort and a measure of resolution to Kristen's loved ones. Purevel said during the trial that Paul Flores, a fellow Cal Poly student, had hunted Smart for months, noting witness testimony that he had frequently appeared where she was, including her dormitory. She arrived at the Crandall Street house party around 10.30 p.m., according to testimony during the trial. Others who were there said she never smelled of alcohol, but was seen with one drink shortly before midnight after hanging out with Flores. Afterwards, she passed out on a lawn for two hours. Purevel alleged that her behavior was consistent Consistent with someone drugging her. As she and two fellow students began to leave, Flores appeared out of the darkness to help her walk home. Witnesses testified. Smart needed help to get up a hill, and once in the side of the dormitories, prosecutors say Flores promised to get her home. He later insisted he left her within sight of her dorm. Mezik countered that when Smart fell down, Flores picked her up. He was doing a good deed, the defense attorney said. He was not hunting her. But Purevel said the evidence showed that Flores took Smart to his room. Four cadaver dogs would eventually key in on his room because of the smell of death on his mattress. The prosecutors told jurors summarizing testimony from dog handlers. Defense lawyers cast the cadaver dogs as junk science, not backed up by any forensic evidence of Smart's presence in Flora's room. The weekend that Smart went missing, the prosecution said that the whereabouts of neither Paul Flores or Ruben Flores could be verified. But Paul Flores called his father for seven minutes the morning of the event. He knew the one person who would help the dead girl on his bed was his father, Purevel said. It was his version of a 911 call. San Luis Obispo Sheriff Ian Parkinson pointed out Tuesday that the Smart family never got to see her graduate from college, be married, or have children. 
So every year that goes by, they continue to suffer for this loss, he said. This case will not be over until Kristen is returned home, Parkinson said. We have been committed from the beginning, and I remain committed to that fact. We don't take a breath. We don't put this aside. We continue to pursue this until we bring Kristen home to the family. Very sad indeed. If you want to hear more details about that, go listen to that episode 127 that came out April 16, 2021. Next case that I want to cover off on today is an interesting one. Um, It's an update on the Delphi murders case. And we covered off on Abby Williams and Libby German in episode 129. That was May 5th, 2021, when that one was released. And this is also a very, very sad and tragic case. Today is the day update to Delphi murders of Libby and Abby announced by ISB. Ron Wilkins and the Lafayette Journal and Courier wrote this article. Indiana State Police plan a Monday morning news conference this following week to update the investigation of the Delphi murders and who might have killed Libby German and Abby Williams on February 13, 2017. A news release published at 12.35 p.m. Friday did not indicate what the update might be. The news conference is scheduled for 10 a.m. on Monday at the Delphi United Methodist Church. But Fox 59 in Indianapolis is reporting that a man named Richard Allen, 50, was arrested and booked into the Carroll County Jail on suspicion of murder in connection with the girls' killings. Fox 59 reported that the man was moved to a state facility for his safety. The Indianapolis news outlet attributed the information to sources. The Journal and Courier called the Carroll County Jail and no one answered. The Journal and Courier called Carroll County Sheriff Toby Lesenby several times and left voicemails, but he did not respond. Indiana State Police Sergeant Jeremy Pierce said he cannot confirm if an arrest was made in this case. Indiana laws require police to release the identity of anyone arrested as well as anyone incarcerated in a jail or prison within 24 hours of the arrest. The name, age, and address of the person arrested, as well as the crimes he is suspected of committing, is required by law to be released. Pierce still refuses to release information, saying that any update will be released on Monday. The Courier and Journal filed a request Friday afternoon to inspect public information with Indiana State Police and Lesenby. They are required to respond within 24 hours of that request, but Kelsey German, Libby's older sister, tweeted Friday morning, just know how grateful I am for all of you. No comments for now. Any questions, please refer to the Carroll County Prosecutor's Office. There is tentatively a press conference for Monday at 10 a.m., and we will say more then. Today is the day, she wrote. The news conference comes six years after the killings. There was no school on Monday, February 13, 2017, which was an unusually warm day with spring-like temperatures. Abby spent Sunday night at Libby's house, and on Monday afternoon, the two went hiking on trails east of Delphi around the Monin High Bridge, which spans Deer Creek. Libby's family became concerned when the girls did not show up at the rendezvous site for their ride home. Family members started a search that night, which was joined by many in the Delphi community. The next morning, the search resumed with search parties fanning out along the trails and creek. A party found Libby and Abby's bodies along the Deer Creek, about a quarter of a mile east of the Monon High Bridge. The land where the girls were killed was owned by Ron Logan. 
Police suspected Logan for a while because his alibi of his location on the afternoon of February 13, 2017, was a lie according to search warrant probable causes confirmed and made to be authentic. Logan was later arrested for violating his probation and sent to prison to serve a suspended sentence. He has since died. Police also interviewed Keegan Klein, a man awaiting trial in Miami County for child exploitation and child pornography charges. A transcript of detectives' interview with Klein indicated that Libby had contact with Klein's catfish social media account titled Anthony underscore Shots. Klein indicated in an interview with Headline News that police said the person on Anthony underscore Shots account was the last person to communicate with Libby. A check of online court records indicates that Klein has not been charged with anything connected to the girl's killings. Police can ethically make false statements to manipulate a suspect to reveal information useful to an investigation. And police have confirmed that the persons on Klein's account actually communicated with Libby via the Catfish account, which Klein admitted to owning. On the account, Klein used a male model's photo and pretended to be that person. Days after the killings, police released photos of a sketch of a possible suspect. Two years later, police released a second sketch of a possible suspect. The two sketches were strikingly different. Police explained that the second sketch was based on additional information and more refined than the initial sketch. Police have been tight-lipped about the investigation, so Monday's news conference will be considered unusual. Well, I certainly hope that there are significant leads in this case and that they have finally found the person that did this terrible, terrible thing to those poor young girls. Next article that I want to cover off on today, California marijuana company sued after customers say its weed was not strong enough. Natalie Nasha Alund wrote this article. A California marijuana company is being sued for false advertising after two dissatisfied customers said its weed was not strong enough. The class action lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles County Superior Court against Dreamfield Brands, Inc. for allegedly falsely claiming that their products have a high THC component according to the suit. THC, or tetrahydrocannabinol, is the compound in marijuana that makes users feel high. Jasper Centineau of Long Beach and Blake Wilson of Fresno filed the 26-page suit October 20th on additional allegations including unfair competition and negligent misrepresentation. Both plaintiffs claim they bought pre-rolled Jeter brand joints that were advertised as having a high THC content. As required by the California Department of Cannabis Control regulations, all of the Jeter products claim to have a specific high THC content, the plaintiff's attorney, Kristen Cho, wrote in the lawsuit. Because cannabis consumers generally prefer and are willing to pay more for high THC cannabis products, declaring that their products have very high THC content allows defendants to, to charge premium rates for their cannabis products, the lawsuit reads. But testing, the suit continues, revealed that the joints actually had a lower THC content than claimed, meaning that millions of consumers were overpaying for a weaker product. Jeter, the subsidiary of Dreamfields, the company that produced the joints, could not immediately be reached for comment by USA Today, but in a statement shared with CNN, the Desert Hot Springs-based company called the allegations 
baseless and ridiculous. The allegations regarding our THC levels are false, the statement reads. We take pride in our compliance and commitment to the state-mandated testing procedures, including independent third-party testing. The products and our integrity are something we truly value as a company and take all the proper and legal steps before our products hit the shelves. The plaintiffs are seeking damages, including restitution and injunction against the company, as well as attorney's fees in the case. Well, that is an interesting one, and we will keep you all posted as it unwinds. And then one final article today that I thought was particularly interesting because I come from Washington State was city ordered bikini baristas to cover up, and that is unconstitutional, a Washington judge rules. This article was written by Brooke Batinger. Bikini baristas in a Washington city were banned from wearing pasties and G-strings to work, and a U.S. district court ruled that it was unconstitutional. The judgment centered on dress code laws the city of Everett passed in 2017, which the workers say clearly targeted the businesses where they worked. U.S. District Judge Ricardo Martinez found the dress code, which required all quick service facility workers to wear shorts and t-shirts that would cover their midriffs, violated the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution, as well as the Washington State Constitution's 14th Amendment because it targets women's clothing and not men's. The court found that the dress code was shaped by gender-based discrimination, according to the ruling. The judge also agreed that the dress codes could risk subjecting the women to arbitrary enforcement by police. Assuming the owners of Bikini Barista stands are unable or unwilling to enforce this dress code, at some point law enforcement will be asked to measure exposure of skin by some method, Martinez wrote in his October 19th ruling. This encourages a humiliating, intrusive, and demoralizing search on women, disempowering them and stripping them of their freedom. A representative of the city of Everett said the city is assessing the court's decision and will determine next steps in the next couple of days. The representative also sent McClatchy News an investigative report from the police department that ultimately argued a dress code would cut down on crimes linked to the bikini barista stands, including prostitution, lewd conduct, and sexual assault. The workers had argued that places such as McDonald's and Starbucks attract more crime than the bikini barista stands and that targeted regulation was unconstitutional because bikini barista stands are not the primary cause of serious crime, according to a law lawsuit filed in 2017 against the city and the judge's ruling. The city's bare-bones appeal to community standards and protecting women from exploitation are rooted in exactly such impermissible romantic paternalism toward women or sex stereotyping, the plaintiffs argued. It is the embodiment of the belief that women must dress a certain way to avoid exciting men to sexual misconduct or that society should be able to tell women, but not men, to cover up certain body parts because others might find those parts sexual. These beliefs are rooted in impermissible stereotypes about what is not proper dress and behavior for one's sex. The judge sided with the city when it came to this line of argument, saying protecting public sensibilities serves as an important basis for government action. 
However, those working in the profession are predominantly women, especially in Everett. The judge found it would be unlikely that those rules would be applied to men's attire. At least one coffee stand in Seattle employs hunky men instead of women. Dream Boys Espresso opened in 2019 to replace the bikini barista's Ladybug Espresso shop, McClatchy News previously reported. The men bared not only their midriffs, but worked while entirely topless. According to the ruling, the dress code clearly treats women differently than men by banning a wide variety of women's clothing, not just pasties, g-strings, or bikinis. The judge ultimately decided the city did not prove how this disparate treatment of women was meant to achieve the state goals of the dress code. U.S. District Court granted a motion for summary judgment on the ruling and directed the city of Everett to meet with plaintiffs within 14 days to discuss next steps. On Tuesday night at Hillbilly Espresso, a barista dressed as Lily Munster told the Everett Herald she was relieved to hear the court's ruling. She told the outlet the dress code ordinance enacted weird rules that made her and other employees feel uncomfortable. I think this protects our safety from law enforcement touching our body, Emma Dilemma told the outlet. Who's approving my outfit? Is it my female boss or some random dude cop that I don't know? I don't want them having to stick a ruler next to my body. Interesting stuff. I guess we will wait and see how that one turns out as well. The main case for the day is the story of Dylan Redwine. Corey and his younger brother Dylan lived in Denver, Colorado with their father, Mark, and their mother, Elaine. The brothers, seven years apart, were best friends doing everything together, and they were extremely close. The two blonde boys loved exploring the outdoors. They went to sporting events with their parents, and their father wanted to go to every baseball stadium and every NASCAR location. So he took the family on trips as often as he could. The family seemed very happy, and the boys remember lots of great memories when they were younger. Dylan was adventurous, happy, easygoing, until he was about seven, and his brother was about 14. Elaine was the primary breadwinner, and Mark was a stay-at-home dad. But by the time Dylan was about seven, the Redwine parents' relationship began to deteriorate, and within a few months, the two filed for divorce. Mark ended up taking a job as a truck driver, and the family still lived together for a year while the divorce was finalized. Despite the earlier happy times, the divorce was nasty and the boys got stuck in the middle many times. When it became clear that the boys cared more for their mother, this made things even more strained in the Redwine family. Initially, Mark pursued visitation and custody so that he could receive financial compensation. But by the time the divorce was nearing an end, Mark had purchased a cabin near Durango, Colorado, with hopes that his sons would spend time there with him. It was quite a distance from Colorado Springs, where Elaine was living, and it was about a five-hour drive, and it was not one that the boys looked forward to. Mark received 50% custody, but spent much of his time on the road for work, and the boys happily settled in with their mother. Flash forward to November 2012, and it is around Thanksgiving time, Dylan had to spend Thanksgiving with his dad as part of a court order for visitation, and it was part of their visitation schedule. Corey, the older brother, was over 18, so he no longer needed or wanted to spend time with his father, but Dylan had to, and he didn't have a choice. Dylan loved the city, baseball games, and the area where he lived in Colorado Springs with his mother. He enjoyed school and had lots of friends. 
he was definitely not looking forward to the Thanksgiving visit in Durango because the cabin was out in the middle of nowhere and far from most of Dylan's friends. It was also boring and isolated and not exactly the sort of environment that a 13-year-old would want to hang out in. Dylan tried everything he could to stay with his mom for Thanksgiving, and according to other family members, Mark was a heavy drinker who didn't cook much and was hard to get along with, so there was definitely a reason why Dylan didn't want to spend Thanksgiving there. But nonetheless, he flew to Durango November 18th, 2012, and Mark met him at the airport. The 13-year-old texted his mother when he landed to let her know that he'd made it safely, and that was the last text his mother ever received from her 13-year-old son. Now, initially, Elaine read one wasn't concerned because she knew he was a teenage boy and sometimes he would get preoccupied and fail to write back. But the next day, Mark Redwine texted his ex-wife to ask her if she had any idea where their youngest son was. Elaine, understandably upset, was very mad that her ex had seemingly lost his son within just hours of picking him up. Mark Redwine claimed he'd picked his son up at the airport and they'd gone to get food. He said he'd been out of town working and had just returned recently and did not have much to eat in the house. So they went to the Walmart and then McDonald's and Mark claimed they'd gotten to his house around 8.30 on Sunday night, November 18th. He then says the two watched a movie and Mark went to bed around 10.30, leaving Dylan downstairs on the couch. Now the cabin was small and Dylan didn't have his own room, so this was not necessarily surprising, but when Mark rose the following morning, he got up to do errands and claims that his son, Dylan, was struggling to get up and Mark ended up leaving him at the house to go finish what he needed to do. And when he returned to the isolated cabin, Dylan was gone. Mark claims it was normal for his son to wander off at times to go down to the river or go hang out in one of the camping spots. By 2.30, Mark Redwine was finally concerned, and that was when he texted Elaine, who immediately drove to Durango, arriving a little before midnight. Elaine and Corey immediately started searching, and it turned out that Dylan had made plans to hang out with his friend the day after he'd arrived, but he'd never showed up. Corey Redwine later revealed that things had not been great in the Redwine house after their mom had divorced their dad. Mark Redwine was known to monitor his son's eating habits and force them to eat food out of the garbage can if they attempted to throw anything away. Surprisingly, Mark was calm as if nothing was wrong when the family arrived to help look for Dylan. Volunteers and friends searched the area high and low for the missing 13-year-old within hours after they arrived in the Durango area. They started a Facebook page, and everyone just sort of assumed that Dylan had been abducted while hitchhiking to go visit his friends. About a week passed, and everyone realized that Dylan had taken all of his things from his father's house. And this was really strange. And the more time that passed, the more resistant Mark became to helping. And he refused to talk or answer any questions or even assist further while volunteers searched the forest around his property. The FBI joined in on the search and the family actually went on the Dr. Phil show and numerous other shows at the time to get word out about their missing son. The interview did not go well on the Dr. Phil show though and Dr. Phil made him retell his story including coming home and taking a nap rather than searching for his missing son. 
Mark definitely was very uncooperative, refusing to take a polygraph and looking like he didn't care about his missing son. Everyone thought Mark was super suspicious. And Corey Redwine already knew that his father was a weird kind of a guy. He had seen some things through the years that sort of showed him that his father was a little bit strange and had some bizarre interests. There were magazines, a tool bag filled with women's panties, guns, brass knuckles, and all sorts of other things. And Corey also came across some things that sort of showed his father's depraved behavior. At one point, Dylan discussed something even more bizarre and disturbing. He revealed at one point the two brothers had found pictures of their father dressed in wigs, women's clothing, and makeup. He'd also taken pictures of himself in a dirty diaper and then having feces smeared all over his face and then the diaper full of feces in his own mouth, which is deeply, deeply disturbing. But Corey warned his brother not to tell his father that they found these pictures because he was afraid of retribution or revenge. Corey and Dylan talked about it, and both of them were shocked at their father's extreme behaviors. The picture had been found about a year before Dylan disappeared, but at several points, Corey had discussions with his brother about this and even had confronted his father at one point. Things were very tense and uncomfortable, and feelings between the three males sort of deteriorated. Corey believed that his brother may have confronted his father with these pictures at some point. Christmas and New Year's eventually passed, and then Dylan's 14th birthday with no trace of the missing boy. After a five-day search, a distance up the road from Mark Redwine's cabin yielded tragic findings. The search was over. Dylan's remains were found on the side of the road June 22, 2013. The bones were spread out. There was also shoes, scraps of clothing, and other belongings. In November 2015, hikers found Dylan's skull in the same area. The skull showed marks they suspected were caused by a knife or another type of sharp weapon, and there was a two-inch long fracture caused by what they believe was blunt force trauma. In July 2017, Police located Mark Redwine in Bellingham, Washington, and immediately arrested him. The warrant was for second-degree murder and child abuse charges. Cadaver dogs had also alerted at Mark's truck at one point, but police did not have enough evidence at that point to arrest him, and they weren't able to until they found Dylan's body. Dylan's family believes Mark killed his son on November 18th, the day he arrived in Durango. They also believe that Mark drove up into the mountains and threw Dylan's body parts out alongside of the road. Police believe Mark had taken multiple trips to get rid of all of Dylan's things. Mark had picked up his son from the airport and airport security cameras showed this. They also showed the two at Walmart. Luminol showed there was blood around the couch and coffee table and the floor. The cause of death could not be precisely determined because of how badly Dylan's body had decomposed, but the blunt force injuries were obvious. As previously mentioned, Mark was arrested in 2017 and pled not guilty to the charges. The trial started in 2020, and then by November 9th, 2020, COVID caused a mistrial. The second trial for Dylan Redwine's murder took place in the summer of 2021. On July 16, 2021, the jury found Mark guilty of murder in the second degree and child abuse. He was sentenced to 48 years in prison. 
To this day, Mark Redwine still refuses any responsibility, he shows no remorse, and claims he is innocent. He vows to appeal until he cannot appeal anymore. We're going to wrap the show up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We will put that into the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe as well to our little podcast. It's really important for us and it helps our podcast show up in searches. We also post pictures occasionally on Instagram at BFD podcast. And you can go check those out. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!